for epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities and all of the fascinating medicine and science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, psychiatrist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and I hope to help bridge that unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool and they sure give us something positive to think about. This week on the podcast, we're talking about sodium valparate, aka Epilim. Its feature in the UK government's Cumberledge Review and why it has been called a public health scandal by some. Sodium valparate is a medicine commonly used to treat epilepsy and bipolar actually, and has been around since the 1960s. It's a drug that I used to take years ago, but it didn't work for me personally. You'll find it referred to mainly as Valparate in this podcast. I shall be talking with Dr. Jim Morrow, a former neurologist from Ireland, with whom I did a live video interview a few weeks ago. Check it out on my YouTube page if you haven't already. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Tell us about yourself. I'm a, or have been, a consultant neurologist uh, based in Belfast. I <laughs> qualified um, back in the late 80s. And got quite interested in neurology a few years later, and then realized that epilepsy was a very much a Cinderella subject within neurology, mm. yet it was probably one of the commonest diseases that neurologists should see. I say should see because they didn't really see many people with epilepsy at that time. They tended to abrogate their care to general practice, general physicians, etc. So I took myself off to Cardiff for three years and worked with Professor Alan Richens, who had set up one of the very first specialist epilepsy clinics in the UK. And I was very impressed by the work there. And I actually did a research project, which ended up in a doctorate, to compare the outcomes of patients with epilepsy who came to our specialist clinic against those patients that were seen, in fact, by neurologists rather than GPs or general physicians, because neurologists at that time were probably the gold standard, though they weren't specialists in epilepsy. And that research showed very clearly that the specialization in epilepsy had big advantages for those patients. They had much better outcomes. Many more became seizure-free. The use of drugs was better. There were far less side effects. And people felt generally more satisfied. They had more information to hand. And so I presented this work widely. And happily now, I can say that at least partially that has contributed to the fact that, that there's very few areas within the United Kingdom that doesn't have a, a specialist epilepsy clinic that people can access. I agree completely. Specialists in epilepsy are just invaluable for people affected and people not just with the diagnosis, but also family members, friends and society overall. Yeah, I mean, the only problem with the specialisation is that sometimes it's quite difficult to get into these clinics because they're a victim of their own success. They have a large number of referrals and a small number of doctors to take those referrals. Happily, though, the specialist epilepsy clinics have evolved, and now they have brought on board perhaps one of the best pieces of equipment, I suppose, if we can call them that, which is the specialist specialist epilepsy nurses. And these uh, nurses are extremely well-informed, they're extremely helpful, and they're much, much more accessible than our neurologists themselves. They don't necessarily use long, funny words either, so they're bilingual, right? 
Are you implying that doctors don't speak English properly? <laughs> we can speak a bit of Latin and a bit of Greek. You're quite right. Because, yes, you're yeah. multilingual. Multilingual. multilingual yeah. <laughs> the trouble is, yes, we should speak English when we all too often speak medicine language. Personally, every neurologist I've had has always spoken my language. But because I know this is a really, really common issue that many of us have in understanding the multi-syllable words that we aren't familiar with, we create the epilepsy glossary so that people can just see the translation. In my view, it almost stems from the way that we pick people to do medicine and become doctors. To be to get into medicine, you need usually A's and A level in yeah. physics, chemistry, maths and biology. I'm not sure those are the best subjects to make you a good communicator, which was what doctors have to be. Communication skills and empathy are valued much more nowadays. But especially, I think, in urology, where many yeah. of the diseases that we treat, we can't cure. We can help and we can support. And yeah. that is exactly, as you say, empathy, communication um, is far more important than the physical things that we can do for patients. I was going to say that's why we patients need to be much more aware of the amazing research that is going on out there and how much we need more of it without research into new treatments, preventions, new methods of care. We're not going to get very far. Things take money. That's how we can get, I think, more people into it. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, sometimes... People don't appreciate research because they're looking at things that seem a bit obscure or whatever. But as time goes on, they can it can make a big impact on how we treat patients. Without research, we wouldn't have many of the drugs that we have. Drugs have to be go through various stages of research um, to prove in phase one to see if they're safe in animals. Phase two is really a short-term uh, drug trial to show that they can actually have some effect. And phase three is giving patients a much longer doses of the drug so you can see if the effect is maintained, but also any, any side effects that come through. And that takes many years. But it's vitally important that we do that research. Otherwise, we, we, we won't see any new medications coming on the market. Same is true for other ways that we treat, treat patients as well. Yeah, I think it's incumbent upon us to prove that that is actually beneficial. This leads me on to something else, actually. Not all side effects are immediate. Some come on a lot later, and I think you've got a story to tell us about that. Well, yes. I mean, we're very good at picking up acute side effects. If a person takes a rash or vomits after a drug, we, we pick that up very quickly. It's fairly obvious, and doctors get to know about it because the GP will fill in what's called a yellow card. And the yellow card is linking a side effect with a drug, and the Committee on Safety of Medicines put that together and then issue alerts that this drug is associated with this particular side effect. But... That's only part of the story. Drugs can have much longer term effects. And there's been recent publicity about a review carried out by Baroness Cumberledge looking at the longer term effects of certain medicines and medical devices. In particular, vaginal mesh, Primados, which is a hormonal drug uh, for pregnancy. And from our standpoint, uh, looking at the longer term effects of a drug called sodium valproate or epilim which is widely used in epilepsy. I give evidence to that report because a lot of what she presented in that report about epilim came from our work here in the UK. It was called the UK and Ireland Epilepsy and Pregnancy Register. What got me interested was a lot of new 
anti-epileptic medications were coming on the market. And they were being increasingly widely used because these drugs maybe caused less sedation, they had less other side effects, and they seemed to be effective for many people. But my question then arose, okay, I've got a young woman, I want to put her on this drug, she's going to be on it for many years. What happens if she gets pregnant? Is it safe for that woman mm-hmm. to take the drug during pregnancy? And the drug companies came back and, of course, said, oh, we know it's safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, how do you know? And they said, well, we test it on rats. And I thought, hmm, okay, well, that doesn't answer the question as far as I'm concerned. So we set up a research project. Um, and it, was, it really wasn't rocket science. It was really a very simple thing to do. We set up a register. And basically what we did was we asked GPs, neurologists, or the patients themselves if they knew of a woman or they were the woman who got pregnant taking one of these drugs or had epilepsy and, in fact, wasn't, weren't taking a drug at all, just let us know. And what we did was take the details of the, the drug that they were on and the dose, and then we asked that woman's permission to contact her general practitioner three months after the baby was born just to find out if everything went all right or not, were there any problems with the baby, any problems during the birth, etc. And then later we worked with the University of Liverpool to actually follow the children up into the school age years. And it's become quite a powerful tool. We, we recruited women simply through a free phone or we've got a website where you can download the forms. And what came out of it was we had, as I say, very large numbers. We've got some 15,000 pregnancies in the, in the register now with two to 3,000 on most of, the, uh, most of the anti-epileptic drugs that are used. And that gives us a lot of good evidence. And what came out for me was very reassuring at first in that these new drugs which were coming in the market actually appeared to be safe in human pregnancies. But what really stuck out like a sore thumb and, and really shocked me was that one drug, sodium valproate, epilin, which is, had been around since 1974, really stuck out, as I say, like a sore thumb because there were very many more major congenital malformations being associated with this drug. 10% of the children that were born had some kind of structural abnormality like spina bifida, cleft palate, club foot. And when we followed them up, up to school age, we find that 30% of the children, a third of the, of the children exposed in utero during pregnancy to this drug had developmental delay, difficulty communicating with others, autism uh, spectrum disorders. And a third of these children seem to be being affected by either structural abnormalities or these neurodevelopmental delay problems. And yet this drug had been around for 40, 50 years, second commonest drug used in the United Kingdom. So this drug, if you extrapolate, has clearly caused damage to many, many thousands of children over the years. And in fact, probably hundreds of thousands of times more children than thalidomide ever did. It was picked up very quickly because the abnormalities were unusual. Whereas with valproate, the abnormalities were abnormalities that can occur, like spina bifida cleft palate. For a doctor, you might have one woman who gets pregnant and valproate in your whole career, or if you're a neurologist, maybe once every you know few years. So that once in a while, a child would be born with spina bifida in your practice. But sure, that happens. They don't necessarily yeah. relate to, to the drug. And then if a child has learning difficulties, it's unlikely that the school psychologist or whoever will read it back to the drug that the woman took during pregnancy. So this is what Baroness Cumberlege was bringing to light, that there are these longer-term effects not only on the patient that takes the drug, but on a potential baby 
that aren't really being picked up by current monitoring systems. And that's a lot of people to be affected by something. And it's not like catching a bug. It's something that is going to be with that child their lifetime. In your opinion, how should the medical profession, the international as well as national bodies, and us as people affected by epilepsy, how should we react to this, do you think? Well, I think a high percentage of the medical profession, and certainly those that specialise in epilepsy, are aware of this problem and have been aware of this problem for some years because I've been talking about it for a long time, presenting it in international and national meetings. So they are aware. And nowadays, the flyer that comes with Epidem does highlight that there is a potential risk here. But I think Baroness Cumbridge herself has highlighted that this does suggest that there is a failure of the monitoring systems that we have to look at these long-term effects, and this needs to be addressed. We've offered ourselves to, to try and continue with our register and to help in any way we can. Our register, though, is a research project. It's totally voluntary. Women do not have to register with us if they become pregnant. Because there's a lot of interest in this, we do get about 30% of all UK pregnancies uh, in women taking anti-epileptic drugs. But if we got 100%, we could get the answers for individual drugs, for new drugs coming along much, much quicker. And maybe that is the way to go. Is it easy for people to connect with the person in charge of the study? How would one do this? And well, the easy can you reassure us it's not stressful as well? No, it's dead easy. The ways to connect with us, if you are a woman who's pregnant or you have questions, we have a free phone. And you can look that up on our website, which is www.epilepsyandpregnancy.co.uk, all one word. If you ring the free phone, you will get through to a marvellous specialist epilepsy nurse called Beth Irwin, who has really run this register since its inception about 20 years ago. And she is probably the most knowledgeable specialist in epilepsy uh, that exists. And she's also very approachable, very friendly and I think anybody who's got any concerns would uh, be delighted to talk to her and she will hopefully reassure them or be able to give advice or refer them on to somebody who can give them the appropriate advice. And that's wonderful that we have her to contact. What would you say to our listeners who aren't from the UK? Because we have a lot of people in the States, in Australia, in India, in countries in Africa, and lots of people don't have access to epilepsy nurses. And they're trying to learn more about epilepsy and the drugs, which are often even more limited than in other parts of the world. What should they do to try and monitor their own health if they're taking sodium valproate? Gosh, I, I don't know the answer to that, to be frank. In most developed countries, they will probably be under a neurologist. But I agree with you, in the developing world, yes, they may not have that access. The doctors may not always have the knowledge. And to, to get to see somebody may be quite difficult. Also, the range of drugs that people use will again be restricted. Here in the UK, there are people out there who say we should not use valproate at all. And unfortunately, that in my, to my mind at least, it's not going to happen. And the reason I say that is I would prefer that we didn't use valproate, particularly in young women, but for the foreseeable future, I think we're going to have to. And the reason I say that is there are certain types of epilepsy for which valproate is the only drug that works. And that leaves women with a stark choice. Take this drug or have seizures. And seizures, depending upon the type that fancy raising the ugly heads, may have a more negative impact upon the mother and the unborn child than the drug itself. But how do you tell? We can't, right? No. But what a woman on Valprit needs to do is have her diagnosis reassessed. A lot of people who have epilepsy grow out of it. Do they still need that drug? 
Or do they have a different type of epilepsy other than the ones that I'm talking about in which valproate is not the only drug that works? And could we then change the drug to a safer one? So there are, there are options. And even with valproate, there are options. What we find in our register is that the higher the dose of valproate, the greater the risk. So can we possibly reduce the dose? And another thing that came out, and I think doctors perhaps aren't so aware of this, is that if you combine valproate with other drugs like lamotrigine, it does enable you to reduce the dose of valproate, which again reduces the risk to the baby. Now, it's kind of counterintuitive because if you talk to doctors, they would prefer you to be in one drug rather than a combination. And particularly in pregnancy, they'd prefer you to be in one drug than a combination. But there is this special circumstance where if that other drug allows you to reduce the dose of the valproate, then it may actually be a better thing to do than continue with the valproate at a higher dose. Also, I guess, though, we don't know if that other drug will be useful or not. Wouldn't it not be a bit trial and error, like it, before it ideally be you get bit, pregnant? It will always be a bit of trial and error. And if you start changing doses and adding things in, you may lose your driving license. So it has social, occupational and other implications. So it is not an easy decision for a woman to make. It's an individual decision. You need to have somebody who is competent in advising and discussing these issues, like an epilepsy specialist nurse or a neurologist. And we have an epilepsy nurse organisation in the UK, don't we? Epilepsy Specialist Nurses Association. That's it. And also in Belfast, uh, we set up one of the very first joint epilepsy obstetric clinics so that I and uh, my epilepsy specialist nurse, Beth Irwin, attended the obstetric clinics during the women's pregnancy because obstetricians really don't have much of a clue about neurological disease in general and epilepsy in particular. So we were there to advise them, but also to advise the women and make whatever adjustments needed to be made to the drugs. Because we talked about epilepsy, and a lot of women think that one's been highlighted, but so no epilepsy drug is safe. But in fact, most of them, in fact, all of them are safe except for valproate at the present time. There's a question of word to pyramate, but it's not resolved yet, but all the other drugs appear to be safe. However, there are other things that happen that maybe obstetricians and, and GPs weren't aware of, such as lamotrigine, and it's safe in pregnancy. If you get pregnant on lamotrigine, your blood levels of lamotrigine drop. So you could have seizure breakthrough. So you, that should be known about so that the dose of lamotrigine can be increased a little bit during pregnancy to counter that. It's important to see somebody who really knows about subject and, and sees a lot of people with epilepsy. What would be the recommendation for people who are interested in the Cumberledge reports? How can they positively impact future decisions on sodium valproate? I think anybody with epilepsy needs to put pressure on their local MP to look at this report and to see what should be done in their area. And what needs to be done is to provide sufficient numbers of neurologists, to provide sufficient numbers of epilepsy specialist nurses, so that if the situation arises that a woman with epilepsy wants to become pregnant, they can get reassurance if they're on one of the safe drugs, or options can be looked at if they're on valproate. I, mean, I think this is the time to do it because the report is out there. It's being presented to government. And it's a question of pushing them to do something about it, to implement this report. And not just to say, well, sure, but sure, dial mesh and hope and primidus are sorted out. And it's just this other one with epilepsy. Sure, we can take that on board, but do little about it. Now, we want to end on something positive. What drives you with your work? Do you tell? And, and what does your work involve now? Because you're not a full-time neurologist these days, are you? 
No, I had to early retirement. I actually on medical grounds because I intra- I ironically <laughs> um, had a quite a serious neurological condition myself, which has left me with epilepsy. My colleagues actually had to look after me, which was a bit scary. But I'm still very much involved in the work of the register, and I've tried to amuse myself in other ways by by writing crime fiction novels. Got a bit um, of neuroscience in it as well, which of course it has. If people want to find out more about you, where should they go? Get in contact with me through you. So, contact Jim through me, it would appear. You can find me, Tori Robinson, through my website, torirobinson.com, through epilepsysparks.com, or on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram. I truly thank Dr. Jim Murray for such a passionate talk and for educating so many of us regarding a drug that millions of us are taking. Do you know that sodium valproate is an effective anti-epileptic drug for many people, but carries a significant risk for women having children? The drug is no longer prescribed to women of childbearing age unless they are on a pregnancy prevention plan, PPP, due to the implementation of new guidelines based on recommendations from the European Medicines Agency. If you have any questions regarding it, never just stop taking it. Well, not unless you want to encourage a seizure, which is not a great idea. As Jim Morris said, for people with questions about epilim, contact your doctor, your epilepsy nurse or your neurologist. Lots of other people are in a very similar boat to you. I also sincerely thank Julia Cumberledge for the incredible amount of time, energy and passion invested in the Independent Medicines and Medical Devices Safety First Do No Harm Review, aka the Cumberledge Report, as well as all of the above by the families affected who have worked like hell to ensure greater awareness of sodium valproate side effects and to pressure the implementation of change. Know that this podcast is not to be taken as medical advice. Always speak to a medical professional for that official advice. Epilepsy Sparks Insights, my written articles, blog and videos allow me to help inform the world of some exciting work going on in the spheres of epilepsy and provide a voice for the 65 million people with epilepsy. If you found this podcast interesting, cool or eye-opening, please check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Tori Robinson and consider becoming a member where you can gain access to weekly posts, early access to blogs, videos and more. Take care, everybody. Education is power. Oh, and have a happy new year.